Our scripture lesson for today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Bless us in our humanness, O Lord, and guide us into the preferred future that you have for all creation. Amen. Before we get started today, there is a core belief uh, that I think that we really have to agree to before you can really even begin to contemplate this command from Jesus to love your enemy. And that core belief is that we are all God's children, that we are all part of one human family. That means you, and that also means your enemy. If we can't get past that, uh, and we can't say that all of creation is made by God and therefore are his children, then we're never going to be able to grasp this concept of loving our enemy, and I would dare to say you're going to have a hard time even loving your neighbor. Well, today's message is going to make you uncomfortable if you're not already uncomfortable now. <laughs> um, in fact, I'll just about guarantee it, okay? Um, uh, that $5 Dick's going to get from letting people out of here, I'll uh, give you that $5 if you're not uncomfortable by the end of this. Um, I have a Presbyterian pastor friend named Fernando Rodriguez, and he always asks pastors before they go up to preach or do devotions or something, and the other day he said this to me, and that was, preacher, do you have a hard word from the Lord for us today? And by a hard word from the Lord, what he means is difficult. So my answer to that question, if he were here today, is yes. I do have a hard word from the Lord, but I don't believe it's a word from me to you, but I believe it's something that comes to us through this commandment of Jesus to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luckily, I'm a big believer in the uh, sermon as proclamation, so I really do truly believe that somewhere between the end of this pulpit and your ears, the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, so I hope that you will hear what you need to hear today, that it won't be my words, but it will be God's words speaking to you. I realize that some of you missed what I said a minute ago about a hard word because you turned off right after Dick mentioned uh, while he was reading Loving Your Enemies. And the overachievers, the overachievers not among us today those who actually did as instructed in Pastor Jerry's one-on-one and read this passage ahead of time, they decided to stay home. 
But for you who are here today, I have, I hope that this word may, uh, while it is hard, also be life-giving as I believe it was intended to be by Jesus. So what exactly is an enemy? An enemy, an enemy is someone or something that we have enmity towards. So then, obviously, you need to know, what's enmity then? All right, well, I looked it up this morning just to verify I actually knew. Uh, you know, that's always a good thing when you're going to tell people something uh, to make sure that you know what you're talking about. And so enmity, according to the dictionary, is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed to or hostile to someone or something. Well, how many of you out there have ever had someone that you would characterize as an enemy? Raise your hand. Yes, the lights are bright, but I can still see. Raise your hand if you have. Okay. Well, I have, of course, too. I mean, most of us probably have. Um, how did having an enemy make you feel? Did it make you feel angry or upset? Maybe a little disjointed because you don't like to have enemies. It just made you feel weird. Or perhaps even it made you feel righteous. For those of you who did not raise your hands about ever having an enemy, uh, you may think you're off the hook. Well, you're not. Sometimes our enemies are not easy for us to identify on our own. And they may even be too subtle for us to name. But when Jesus speaks the truth to we who are his children, we rarely, he rarely is just dealing with the obvious external parts of who we are, but he is seeking to open us up to hearing the truth about our internal self too. And this internal self is the place that is often most hidden and also the most in need of healing and transformation that only Jesus Christ can provide. Our run-of-the-mill everyday enemies subtle as they may be, can often be identified by our word choices. For example, we typically are speaking of our enemies anytime we use the words, those people. It's a clue. Like, for instance, you might say, those people over there are just animals. Our enemies also might be revealed when we use the word, they. Like in, they just don't appreciate all we've done for them. By using phrases and words like those people or they, we are doing the exact thing that Jesus is trying to keep us from when he tells us to not only love our neighbors, which is hard enough, but to also love our enemies. Jesus is trying to keep us from dehumanizing our neighbors, who are individual children of God by lumping them into groups that makes it easier for us to hate and dismiss and at the extreme end of the spectrum even kill them. The dehumanization of people in general and groups of people in particular has been on display too many times in our world history. During the Crusades, during the transatlantic slave trade, during Jim Crow in America, the Holocaust in Germany, and during apartheid in South Africa, we have seen how what begins as subtle enmity can devolve into a system that dehumanizes people 
who Christ loves and died for on the cross. Think about it. You know, Jesus, think back to when he was uh, being betrayed and he was on the cross. You know, he did not fight back. He did not make people into his enemies, even those who opposed him and occasionally even tried to kill him. He instead used words to make it clear uh, their hypocrisy, their um, abuse of the people, their lack of care for those who were the least of these. And even on the cross, think about it. He said, Father, forgive. But they know not what they are doing. You know, these enemies of his who are killing him on the cross. He says to forgive. Or even the, you know, repentant thief. You know, there's two next to him. The repentant thief. Uh, Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. To somebody who we would all consider an enemy. If not of Jesus, at least of the state. For the past two weeks, I've been in South Africa with the Lilly Endowments Wabash Pastor Leadership Program. Yeah, I know some of you thought you were going to get out of hearing about South Africa. You're not. I'm not going to share it all today with you, though, so you're in luck there. But this was not a mission trip, but rather it was a study tour where we met daily with various uh, religious and community leader, leaders to discuss their work toward reconciliation in a country that was devastated by apartheid rule from 1948 when the National Party was elected until free elections were held there in 1994. Still today, over 20 years later, uh, after the formal end of apartheid, the effects of dehumanization of people along racial lines is readily apparent. You know, it was amazing. Uh, you know, a lot of countries you go to or, or cities you go to, you know, their airports, you land there and as you're driving out of the airport, they've got it all gussied up or they built really big walls so you can't see what's on the other side of the walls. But anyway, they don't just put their, their mess right out there on display. Well, not even a kilometer away from the airport is uh, one of the townships uh, where black South Africans still live and don't even have access to uh, running water or electricity sometimes or adequate sanitation just right there, right in your face. It was dark, and I could even see that it was just a mess. 20 years later, 20-some years later, it's still uh, not good in a lot of places. And sadly, it was also not hard to see parallels between South Africa and our own, and our own history of race in America. As we traveled, I saw much pain and anguish in South Africa. I saw how many, many white South Africans still do not fully grasp their culpability and the impact apartheid had on black South Africans. I saw the poverty and deplorable living conditions of those who are now free, but still do not have access to the abundant wealth of their nation. But I also saw some amazing things. Wow. Not last Sunday, but the Sunday before last. When we first arrived, we went to this place uh, called J.L. Zawani uh, Presbyterian Church. Uh, and we went there, and we, when we arrived, it was amazing. We walked into this little room, kind of like our Wesley Hall, and it was full of people. And they all, several of them got up and gave us chairs and rearranged and let us sit down. So we all sat down, and then the pastor was up front and goes, this is a meeting of my lay leadership of the church, and we do this every week. 
And I about passed out right there. I couldn't even imagine getting our lay leadership together every week on a Sunday morning before church at like 7 o'clock. And those of you who are on our lay leadership can't imagine ever coming to such a thing either, I am sure. So that was the first thing. And then as we sat there, we heard about how they were broken into districts, the township um, Gugoletto Township that they were part of, that in this area they were broken into different uh, areas, and each area had a mission that they chose as a group that they were going to be a part of, like it might be um, dealing with orphans, or it might be uh, sanitation, or it might be health care, or whatever it might be, but they would have an issue that this group that were living in this area would take on as their mission, and they, they handled it themselves. And so then they were making reports about what was going on in their areas and the life that they saw that Jesus' transforming spirit was breathing into this place. And then we found out that one of the, town, one of the little groups, one of these little um, groups was going to be leading worship that day. So we go in and all the people leading worship, first of all, were women. I don't know why that surprised me, but it did. They were all women, no men at all. There were men in the service, but not leading up front. And all of these women, and young women as well, not just adults, but down to probably about 10, and they led the whole service, the preaching, the teaching, the announcements, everything. And it was just amazing, an amazing witness to how God was at work in the lives of the people of this church. I mean, it wasn't the pastors up front doing their stuff and everybody else just being passive observers, but they were actively engaged. Then they got to the offering, and I wasn't sure what in the heck was going on, because they had a big trophy. I mean, like, you know, like a big giant like softball or uh, uh, bowling trophy or something about this tall, and people started going to the back and dancing around, and they grabbed this big trophy, and they started bringing it forward. And the lady in front of me, thank goodness, told me what was going on. That every year they have four trophies that they pass out. And it's to those little, those little groups that care for their part of the community. Uh, they raise money in their groups too to keep the life of the church moving. And so they were celebrating this today. This big to-do was for fourth place. And it was wonderful because you could just see the joy of these people that they had accomplished something for God that they knew would have a lasting impact on people's lives. It was amazing. <laughs> it went on and on and on and people dancing down the aisles and it, it was amazing. And then we finally got to the, the real offering, the regular offering, and then everybody brought their offering down front. They didn't sit there and let it come to them, but they went down uh, singing and dancing all the way. And it was just the most joyful experience of giving that I had ever seen. So that was something else that I saw while I was there. The spirit. Uh, I witnessed the hope of reconciliation and continued attempts to bring about the healing and restoration of all people. And I observed the hard work that has been done and still needs to be completed to make that dream a reality. If, as I suggest, Jesus is attempting to keep us from dehumanizing one another by instructing us to love our enemies, then there is no better example of this process than the one developed by the late Nelson Mandela in South Africa. While in prison on Robben Island, which sits off of the, uh, the shore of Cape Town, Mandela chose not to let himself and his fellow prisoners 
be dehumanized by the guards on the island or the apartheid government that held them there. He decided instead to demand that the guards see them first as human beings. For far too long, black South Africans had been seen as less than human by their government. And many white South Africans just went along with this plan. So Mandela encouraged the inmates to treat guards with undue respect, more respect than they deserved, and engage with them whenever possible in conversation. He also had them do things like slow down, like when they were walking from place to place, they were supposed to walk at a certain pace, and so they just started slowing down. Because then the guards had to realize they were not machines, they were people that had the ability to control their own bodily movements, if nothing else. Peter's story shared about Nelson Mandela that he was the great includer. Nothing was too much trouble if he could cajole or charm an opponent into friendship. This was a man who would not bend an inch in his determination to win freedom for his people, nor bow to the cruelty of his prison guards, yet who said to his comrades, as soon as they arrived on the island, chaps, these Afrikaners, which are the white South Africans, these Afrikaners may be brutal, but they are human beings. We need to understand them and touch the human being inside of them and win them. And that's exactly what they did. Another thing that Mandela did was he wrote letters uh, mainly to his wife, Winnie, but uh, soon he realized that these letters were rarely getting to her or they were being severely redacted, you know, with all the editing marks, with all the black things. So basically it ended up saying, love Nelson at the end or something, you know, everything else was redacted out. Um, But then he realized someone was reading these letters and that someone was government officials. So instead of love letters to his family and his wife, he began to write letters that were addressed to his wife that were meant to be read by the government. And slowly but surely, um, he was able to convey a message uh, to them of their humanness uh, and of their desire for freedom. Not only his personal desire for being in prison, but for all of his people. And then eventually, uh, the government leaders uh, allowed there to be um, negotiations that because of their relationship with him, they chose him to be a part of. After that followed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, chaired by Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it was designed not to punish people but to let the stories be told so that forgiveness and reconciliation could take place. Mandela's belief was that until people heard the truth, they could not move on. So from 1995 to 2002, this commission heard testimony from 21,000 victims. It also received amnesty requests from those who were the victimizers. And together, people who had had family members disappeared or killed uh, for unknown reasons, who were dispossessed of their property and treated uh, even worse than cattle, they heard from those who committed these atrocities their 
explanation or their at least admission uh, that yes, even though we told you we didn't know what happened to your son long ago, we killed him. And I don't think anybody who went through this process would say it was an easy process. That it wasn't without a lot of pain. But both Mandela and Tutu believe it was the only way that they could move forward. Because if they had taken revenge on their enemies, there would not have been any hope for reconciliation. That's why when we Think about what we would like to do to our enemies. We need to remember uh, there is not hope for reconciliation for those who we kill. Peter Story, who was a Methodist pastor in South Africa and later became a bishop, um, he talked a little bit about um, Right before the 1994 elections, a conversation that he had with his church, um, once apartheid started to see the end, when they started the negotiations uh, with Mandela and others, the government started lightening up on some of the restrictions of movement and, and interaction between black and white people. And so Peter's story realized, to be a reflection of the kingdom of God, I need to open up my church to black and white people worshiping God together. And so he was very intentional about that. And he said about 200 of his white parishioners left because of that. But he said, if I had known it was that easy, I would have got rid of him a long time ago. Um, but anyway, um, then it came to the election, the first free election that black and whites were able to uh, vote in together in 1994. The Sunday before the elections that next week, he said to his congregation, he said, look at your brother and sister next to you. And they saw black and white sitting together as one, as members of the body of Christ. And he said, as I want you to remember this picture when you're in the voting booth. And I want you to decide if you can once again enslave your brother and sister in Christ. Let that be on your mind as you cast your vote. Well, as you know, the ANC and Nelson Mandela won that election, and he was elected the first uh, black president of South Africa and first free president of black South Africa in a democratic election. Um, This reconciliation is not easy. This loving of our enemy is not easy. But we have to be aware of the places where we dehumanize others. Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said that there is nothing more difficult than waking someone who is only pretending to be asleep. We know we have a problem when our lives are honestly held up to the truth of Christ. We all have enemies, and sometimes the enemy resides within us. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus calls us out of the shadows of our minds that fester hate, prejudice, and violence. He calls us out of the fog of our easy chairs where we 
forward on hateful attacks from our break rooms where racist jokes are told and from our, the cauldron of negativity that surrounds us on the airwaves as we commute to work each day. And he offers us a place in the human family where no one is dehumanized, where we can be rehumanized, and where love reigns supreme. We must hear this hard work hard word from the Lord today. We must recognize our own contribution to the dehumanizing of our brothers and sisters and seek to reconcile ourselves with them. If you are prone to saying uh, things like those people or they, stop. Find opportunities to engage in conversation with those who may appear to be different than you, but you share a common bond as members of the human community Make the cause of justice and peace your work in the world so that you may one day, through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, you may truly be able to love your enemy and bear witness to the unending goodness of Christ our Lord. Bear witness to the unending goodness of Christ the Lord. Amen.